We're, uh, we're finishing this series today on the book of Jeremiah. Uh, as we've seen, Jeremiah is this prophet that God has raised up. Uh, when, when God's people, Israel, are uprooted from that land we call the land of promise or promised land. And promised land, if you, if you know its place in the story, this is where God planted his people for a very specific purpose uh, they're essentially planted to be God's new garden, uh, the Garden of Eden, this outpost of Eden, uh, in partnership with God to reclaim a world that God loves. And this is why exile is so devastating to God's people. But not just to the people, it's devastating to the story. Because at this point now, if, if, if we are reading the story for the first time, we, we would think that it's hopeless, that it's all lost. We've been looking at, as well, how, how exile is also a part of our world. It's, it, it's part of our lives. It's a part of our journey. Uh, I love how Eugene Peterson uh, describes exile. Uh, he says, the essential meaning of exile is that, when, is, is that we are where we don't want to be. We are separated from home. It's this experience of dislocation where everything is out of joint, where nothing fits together. And I think we just know that, that exile today can take many forms. Uh, it could be a physical loss. It could be a lost relationship. It could be a tense work environment. It could be when your life gets so off uh, the tracks, off the trajectory of, of anything that you had hoped or dreamed your life would be. Uh, exile is being de- disconnected from from people that we love for whatever reason or circumstance. It's, it, it's when life as we know it, and as we've come to experience it, it's just gone. It, it, it's like it slipped through our hands, through our fingers, and in our minds we think it could never be the same again. And some of us are there right now. Some of us uh, feel like our, our, our lives are in exile. I know this because many of you have talked to me, many of you have sent me uh, emails and things like this. And, and it's into this hopeless reality then that Jeremiah uh, speaks these just amazing words of hope. Uh, first, he calls his people, and these are the words of God, not just the words of Jeremiah, but God's heart here. Don't just sit around and, and, and complain and, and whine and feel sorry for yourself. Uh, he calls them to embrace exile and, and to live into it, to, to live robustly into it. Because Jeremiah tells them, you're not going home. You're going to be here for a long time. You're going to be here at least 70 years, so embrace it. And embrace all that you are in God in this place. Because God hasn't left you. And so live into this calling, this massive calling that God placed on you in promised land. Live into that calling in this place as well. And then Jeremiah gives them these amazing words of hope. And they're right from God's heart. Where God says, for I know the plans that I have for you, Israel. Plans to prosper you. Plans to give you a hope future. But you must call on me. And you must seek me with all your heart. Can you say that today? If you're in exile, that you're not just sitting there and and thinking, poor me, 
but it's just causing your heart to just seek him and, and to call on God with everything you have because God's people, they took those words to heart. They sought God with everything they had and therefore God preserved them. And I don't know if you know this, but the Jewish people to this day are a modern miracle because no people, no culture or nation has ever been able to preserve itself for even a couple generations without a land that they could call their own. And yet the Jewish people have somehow uh, preserved their culture, their identity. They've remained a people for almost 2,000 years without a land. And so how did this miracle happen? Because they took to heart God's word spoken through Jeremiah. They embraced exile. And what they did in exile is they turned to this book. Because before exile, they related to God through, through the temple, but with the temple being destroyed, uh, their relationship with God is now based on, on this book. And it's, it's this book, it's God's word that preserved them. And as they embraced God's word, and as they, they rooted themselves in God's word, uh, God raised them up, and he preserved them. And in this, uh, they didn't become Babylonians. They became, 1 Peter 2, verse 9, a chosen people, a holy nation, a people who belong to God. And probably even more than that, uh, they became God's city, not just in the city of Babylon, but they became God's city for the city of Babylon. And what I find so cool then, when you look at the whole biblical narrative and you start looking at the New Testament, uh, by, the, by the time of Jesus, uh, you, you have these Jewish enclaves in almost every major city in the Roman Empire so that the apostles and, and Paul can, can show up in any city and find a synagogue uh, and preach Christ. And because of this, the gospel spread like wildfire. And if you wonder if this is a coincidence, no. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to give you hope. Plans to give you a future. And so if you see yourself in exile, I want you to see yourself as an exile. In fact, this ought to become so much a part of our identity that we're exiles. I mean, by the first century, it's, it's so much a part of uh, the people's identity that when you uh, come to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, Peter is writing to these Christians who live in these cities all over the empire, and look at how he addresses them uh, in the first verse. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's chosen, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, for you have been chosen by God according to his foreknowledge. And uh, uh, they're not exiles like literally uh, in that they've immigrated from one country to another, 
Uh, they are exiles because it's part of their identity of who they are in God. And so this, this morning, I want to conclude this sermon series uh, by looking at Hebrews 11. Let's turn in our Bibles. This is the great uh, hall of fame of faith. That's what some people call Hebrews 11. And probably the greatest man of faith besides Jesus to ever, ever walk the face of the earth is the one that we're gonna read about in this chapter. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, Hebrews chapter 11. And I'm gonna start reading at verse eight. But by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and he walked, even though he did not know where he was going. <laughs> How many of us could do that this morning? Get up and walk because God said it, not even knowing where we're going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger, like an exile in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did his son Isaac and grandson Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations, who architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, when was, she was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man and woman, you could say, he was as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. And all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things that were promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were exiles, foreigners, and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of, not of their own. For they have been thinking of the country that they had left. They would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is a text we're gonna look at. You can be seated. So just to start with a little context, uh, Hebrews is written to Christ followers who are experiencing a major crisis, severe persecution in many different forms, and so the, the author of Hebrews reminds them of what God is up to, and we see that in our text today in verse 10, where it says, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations who architect and builder is God. That's what God's up to. God is building a city. God is a city architect. He is a city builder. You could even say he's an urban planner. And this text tells us some astounding things about this city. First of all, it's a city that Abraham never saw in his lifetime, so it's a future city. It's a city that is still to come. And, and we know a lot more than Abraham, I think, even what this city is because we have the rest of the Bible and we have the end of our Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. And so we know what this future city uh, uh, is going to be. It's the new Jerusalem. Uh, it, it's described uh, just, 
Just like the Garden of Eden, it has this river that flows in and out of it. It has the tree of life uh, that's causing the flourishing and bringing shalom uh, to the world. And the most amazing feature of this city is that God takes up residence right on Main Street and where we will see his face. <laughs> and this is a city that, that God right now is building but one of the traps that we must not fall into is thinking that this city is only future because if we think that this city is only future, we're gonna miss the most exciting thing happening right now. God is building that city right now here on earth. And this goes all the way back to Abraham's people. Uh, when you listen to texts like this, Psalm 107, that, that uh, just in pithy ways, describe the meta-narrative. Uh, Psalm 107 says, then God's people cried out to the Lord in their trouble. This is when they're slaves in Egypt. And God delivered them from their distress and he led them by a straight way to a city. That's how the promised land is depicted. As this city where they could settle, he turned the desert into pools of water, the parched ground into flowing springs. And there he brought his hungry people to live and they founded a city where they could settle. And see, Israel is, is to be uh, the, the city that God is building here on earth to be this outpost of Eden where, where as a people, as a nation, they are turning deserts into pools of water and parched places into springs of Maim Kayim. And this is why God places them right in the heart of the world so they can partner with God to rescue the world. In fact, Israel's mission is very clear. They are to be a city set upon a hill, a light to the nations. They are to be God's salvation to all the peoples of the earth. And this is why in Jeremiah 29, when it looks like all of this is, is, is in wreckage, uh, God is telling his people, you don't need promised land to be on mission be my new Jerusalem here in Babylon. Be this outpost of Eden right where you are. And not just in Babylon, but for the sake of Babylon, for the shalom, shalom of Babylon. And then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus continues the same mission with his disciples. In fact, uh, what is maybe his, his most important sermon that he preached, the Sermon on the Mount, the whole thesis statement of the sermon is, he says, disciples, right now, right now, you are the city uh, set on a hill, a, a city that must not be hidden. Um, you are to be a light. See, this has always been God's mission for his people that, that we are God's city right now, his new Jerusalem, God's garden, where we right now, I love this imagery, are to literally be uh, pools of water to the deserts of our world and springs of Maim Kaim to all the parched places. And then when you go still further in the narrative and, and, and uh, the book of Acts, which is the story uh, after Jesus uh, ascends to heaven, uh, you see that, that they're doing it, uh, that these gospel communities, these, these, these miniature cities of God uh, are formed in all the major cities of the Roman Empire, including Rome itself, which is why we have a book in our Bible called Romans. And, and when you read Acts, you, you have verses uh, like this one. 
where it says, but then they did not find them, so they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting. And listen to what they're shouting, because I wonder if these things are said about us today. These men have caused trouble all over the world. They've now come here to our city. And this man, Jason, has welcomed them into his house, and they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And I love this. It, it, it talks when it says causing trouble all over the world. It, it literally uh, refers to, uh, it's this language of the world is being turned upside down by these guys. These Christians, wherever they, wherever they go, the world is shaking and quaking and being turned upside down. Are we turning our world upside down? Is our world right now quaking and shaking because of us? Look at verse nine of Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham made his home in a promised land like an exile in a former foreign country. Or go down to verse 13. And all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were just exiles. Strangers, foreigners on this earth. See, we're only going to shake our world if we know who we are. And who are we? Well, according to this text, we're exiles. And I'll tell you, that means a lot of things. It, it, it means then that, that this world is not our home because it never was our home and, and it never will be our home. We weren't made for this world. We, we, we were made for another world that our Bible calls Eden. And until God gets us back into Eden, we are to live as exiles and strangers do we know this right now? Is this forged into our identity? Because as hard as we might try to make this world our home, it will never be our home. We will never feel at home. In fact, I think if we do feel at home too much, I wonder how much we really belong to God. Look at Abraham. You're going back to, to verse eight. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed, he walked, even though he did not know where he was going. I know this, Abraham was comfortable. Abraham was living a good life. And all of a sudden, God just kind of barged in and said, it's time for you to get up and to get out, and to go. 
And I see this so often in the Bible, um, especially when, when, when characters of the story have these incredible encounters with God. Uh, God almost always ends these, these incredible encounters by saying to them, okay, get up and go. Uh, he does it with Abraham. He, he, he does it with Moses at the burning bush. He says, all right, Moses, now go. Uh, get out of this desert and go to Pharaoh. Uh, Isaiah, when, God, when Isaiah encounters uh, God in the temple in all of his glory, God ends it by saying, all right, who am I gonna send? Who will go for me? Isaiah says, I'll go. The disciples, I mean, after walking with Jesus, you talk about an encounter with God for three years. Uh, this ends with Jesus saying, okay, guys, I'm sending you out. It's time to go. The Apostle Paul, his Damascus Road experience and, and, and how dramatic that encounter was uh, it ends with God saying to Paul, okay, Paul, I'm sending you. You're going to the Gentiles. See, encounters with the living God, this is how you know it's a true encounter. It always ends with mission. It always ends with God saying, go. And so who are we? What are we doing here? Who are we? We, we have to understand that in this world we are exiles and, and, and what are we doing here? We are sent ones to the world for the sake of the world by God himself. And I think until this burns in our hearts and forges our identity, we'll never shake the world. We're never gonna turn our world upside down. We'll never be the city of God impacting the city of man. Let me keep pushing this further. Is that okay? Can I push this further? That's fair response, I will say that. You're either really tired today, or you're sick like me, or you're like, I don't know about this. And that's a very honest response. We value honesty here. Good, one person got it. <clears throat> what is an exile? Exiles are people who no longer choose to do life based on comfort, safety, familiarity, or being in control. But rather, an exile does life where they can best carry out the business of God, where they can carry out the kingdom of heaven. It's an exile. In fact, I love what it says about uh, Abraham in Hebrews 11, verse 12, because I think this gets to the heart of what an exile is. It says about Abraham that he was as good as dead. And that's what an exile is. It's someone who's as good as dead. And you say, dead to what? Dead to the world. Dead to the opinions of people. Dead to the world's stuff. Dead to the world's ideas. Dead to the world's system. Dead to the latest trends. Dead to groupthink, which is going on so strongly these days. Dead to what's in, what's out. Dead to what's cool, what's not cool. Where money is just money. Home is just a roof over our heads where we can serve God and carry out the kingdom. Our jobs are, are, are just our, our corner in the world where, where we can live out the business of God. An exile is someone who just holds everything with open hands. Easy come, easy go. 
I mean, look at Abraham when God says to him, Abraham, let go of it, all of it. Leave your father, leave your life as you know it. Get up, start walking. He can leave his home, he can leave his father, he can leave comfort, he can leave security. He can obey God, he can get up and walk. He's dead to the world. And see, this is where... uh, I think we have to ask, like, where do we get the power to actually live this way? Um, how, how, how can we be uh, broken out of all of our apathy where we're actually free from this never-ending need for safety, comfort, and control where our lives aren't consumed with, with all the stuff of the world, the thoughts of the world, uh, getting more, where we can actually risk much for God we're not so weighted down by the world. I mean, how do we become the kind of people who, who when we uh, look at all the need and suffering in our world, we don't just like turn away and run from it? Whether it's the broken parts of our city or our schools today or our neighborhoods or the person with cancer or the person who's alone and depressed or the person who's in a broken marriage. How do we become a people who aren't just retreating into our screens for hours every single day, but instead are living courageously for Jesus Christ and actually doing things that cost us much? Where do people like this come from? That's what this whole chapter is about. It's faith. This whole Bible is a story of people with faith. And what's faith? Faith is, verse eight, it's, it's Abraham obeying God and, and getting up and walking. And I want you to think about this. When God says, Abraham, start walking, this guy walks a thousand miles not knowing even where he's going. Right now, is there anything you'd walk a thousand miles for? And faith isn't just verse eight, it keeps going. By faith, verse nine, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob who were also heirs with him in this promise. And there it is, faith is living as an exile. Without faith, we'll never live as exiles. We'll never be like our father Abraham. We'll never leave our comfort. We'll never get out Uh, into our world and and move into our Babel as sent ones. It's faith. And here's where we have to ask, faith in what? Because faith always demands an object. I hear people say to me sometimes, well, just have faith. Well, faith in what? Faith must have an object. And the object of faith is verse 10. Look at verse 10. It says, for Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations who architect and builder is God. (laughs) The object of Abraham's faith is the city of God, this eternal city that is both right now and not yet. And see this faith in, in, in this city and in this God who is building this city has massive implications 
on our life. Implications like this, if, if you have given your life to God, if you've given your life to Christ, whether you know this or not right now, right now you are not from Grand Rapids. You are not from the east side. You're not from Walker. You're not from Ada. In fact, you are not even an American. Why? Because this world is not our home. As Paul says in Philippians 3, for we are citizens of heaven. Add 1 Peter 2, verse 9, we are chosen by God. We are his holy nation. And this is why we don't feel at home in this world. This is why we don't feel at home in any politic, especially partisan politics. This is why we don't feel at home in any country, including our own country. It's because we are exiles. And it's also why we still in our hearts sense this groan because we're not home yet. We're exiles. This is why we live our lives with this sense of longing, this this sense of yearning. And what are we yearning for? We're, We're yearning for that future city, the new Jerusalem I remember years ago when I was uh, in Jerusalem, I was in a part of the city called David's City. In fact, I was standing in, in or over the remains of, of, of what is David's palace. And this Jewish guide was teaching uh, her group, and she was teaching her group about the name Jerusalem, Yerushalayim in, in, in Hebrew. And, and she explained in the Hebrew language uh, how it's unique. Not only does it have a word to make a word plural, which is uh, im, if you add im to any Hebrew uh, word, it's like adding an s, uh, making it plural. But they also have uh, an ending that you can add to a word, im, which makes it not just plural, but more specific. It makes it a dual. It makes it two. And I always wondered this about uh, Jerusalem. Uh, In Hebrew, it's, it's Jerusalem's. But it's not just Jerusalem's plural, it's, it's the dual. And then, and then she tells her group, she says, the reason why Jerusalem has a dual ending is because Jews believe in two Jerusalems. We believe in an earthly Jerusalem, the one that you're standing in right now, and we believe in a heavenly Jerusalem because when Messiah comes and ushers in the Messianic age, heavenly Jerusalem is going to be married with earthly Jerusalem and become one, and the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And I was just like, yes. That's just how my Bible ends. But see, until that happens, we're never gonna feel at home in this life. That's why the author of Hebrews says what he says in verse 14. He says, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. They're looking for it. They're looking for. And then verse 16, instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. See, for, for us with faith, it, it, faith, faith means this life of longing, of seeking, of desiring uh, for a better country, that glorious city, uh, where our eyes right now ought to be so fixed on that city. 
Many of you know this week, Tim Keller, uh, who was battling colon cancer, uh, went to be with the Lord. Uh, I can honestly say, uh, he's been an Apostle Paul in my life, even though he doesn't know me, I don't know him. Uh, he has been uh, maybe the greatest Christian of, of, of our lifetime. And uh, I love the words that he wrote, uh, that he tweeted out, uh, I think the day before he died. He said, he said, I'm thankful for the time God has given me, but I am ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus send me home. See, true faith, it makes us homesick. Are you homesick? Do you have a longing for home? I mean, we're to be right now like a family whose dad is away, who day after day, week after week, year after year, the family waits. And finally the day comes and off in the distance, the kids all grown up see dad. And they run to him with all their might and they welcome him. And there's that wife who's been faithful, this running, this clinging, this reuniting. And that's the image that, that the author of Hebrews is giving us in, in verse uh, 13. It's like he's saying, do you see what's out in the horizon? Do you see him? Do you see our heavenly father? Do you see him coming to us? Do you see him bringing all that he's promised to us in Christ all the things that he has in store for us, new bodies, renewed minds, broken lives put together, and this final consummation of this brilliant, glorious city that Christ right now is building, that our Bible calls home. It's all coming. And our eyes ought to be fixed on it. Fixed on Christ. In our hearts saying, Jesus, you know, I see you. I, I see you. I see you coming. And I want you. I want you more than I want this. I want your kingdom more than I want this. I want your city more than anything this world has to offer. That's faith. I'll tell you, the people that the author of Hebrews is writing to have it, if you look at verse 32 of chapter 10, he writes, remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured a great conflict full of suffering. And then he describes the suffering. Sometimes it's just generic and, and, and it's hard for us to imagine what it could be, but we don't have to imagine what it was. I think we can get in their shoes. He says, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and you joyfully, you joyfully ex accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. I love this verse. This verse inspires me. It confronts me. 
These people are heroes to me. Just imagine if, if we showed up today and I had to tell you, you know, 10, 10 to 20 of our people this week were put in prison. Another six or seven lost their property. And then it says, and they rejoiced. How can they rejoice? They're dead. They're dead to the world. And they have a possession that the world could never understand. And here's the deal. If it ever comes to this, I know I want to be like this. Don't you want to be like this? Don't you want to be free? Don't you want to be free from the love of things? Don't you want to be free from this roller coaster that our world is on right now? Don't you, don't you want your life to, to say to our world what their lives said to their world, uh, world? There is a possession that is so much better, that is so long lasting, that is so much more fulfilling, that if you had it and you lose anything in the name of it, it's all okay. See, if what we love and what we live for and what we long for and, and, and what we find our true home in is actually not of this world, then this world has no power of, over us. It can't control us, and we are free. And see, when a people know this freedom and can live into this freedom and are world knows that we have this freedom and that it can't affect us or shape us because we are so dead to it. The world will shake. And this is the essence of faith. Faith isn't just putting some biblical propositions in our, in our brain. It's not just putting a few labels on our life. Faith is having a life that is so shaped by God it's, it's eyes that are so fixated on God. It's, it's a life that's going God's way. Faith is seeking. Faith is longing. Faith is a heart that desires God far more than anything this world has to offer. It's my heart and my life treasuring Jesus above everything. That's faith. Do you have faith? Are you living as an exile? How tight is your grip on the world, your home, your possessions, your job, your 401k, your kids, your dreams about how your life should go? Or maybe I should ask, how tight is the world's grip on you? I think the question for all of us today is a simple one. Will we trust him? Will we trust God with our life? Will we put all our chips on the side of the table of Christ and his kingdom? Are we all in? God's all in. Jesus, he's all in. In fact, everything God asked of Abraham, Christ did it too. Christ left his father's house. He left his comfortable existence in heaven. He came across all worlds. He became the ultimate stranger in a foreign land. You ever gone to a foreign land? 
where you're the one that sticks out, you're the one with the strange clothes, the funny accent, where it feels like everybody's staring at you. It can be mentally exhausting. And you know what? If you stay there long enough, you quickly realize that you have to adjust your whole life. You have to learn the language. You have to figure out the culture and all its nuances. You have to adapt to their food. You have to check meanings all the time. That's why we have this word culture shock. Do you see what God did in Jesus? Jesus is sent into this world. He came to our neighborhood. He became the ultimate exile, the ultimate stranger. He experienced the ultimate relocation. He gave up ultimate control. He became immeasurably weak and vulnerable as the ultimate sent one. And why did he do it? To find us so he could bring us home. And look at what it cost him. He lost home. He lost his father so he could bring us home and back into the arms of the Father. And right now, he is preparing a place for us in his Father's house. And as the architect and builder of the city of God, verse 16 says he's preparing a city for us. And one day, we will walk its streets, and we will see his face. We're gonna see him. But until that day, we're to be the city. And will we trust him? See, some of you today are facing some big issues, possibly even what you might call a crisis. Will you stay married? Will you stay single? Will you leave the job that you're in? Will you stay in the job? Will you relocate? Will you stay where you are? Will you open your home and use your home to someone who's in need? Will you get up and become a missionary to China? Will you step out of your comfort into a new life trajectory of service to Christ? I think sometimes we, we think like if we, if we take this next step of obedience that it's just gonna make our life miserable. We start having these conversations with God like, God, this isn't gonna work and I don't have what it takes and I don't, I don't have the strength, the resources, the talent, the courage to do what you're asking. But think about Abraham. Did he ever say, Lord, you know, I don't think this is gonna work. I don't have what it takes. Well, he just got up and walked. He trusted God. As did Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the disciples, Paul. Heaven's gonna be filled with millions of people like this. And to think that the baton is now in our hands. It's our time right now to run the race. Will we trust him? Years ago, I made a commitment to God. I said, God, I will never say no again to anything because it makes me feel uncomfortable or afraid. Listen, if your heart moments ago to any one of those things said, yes, that's me. God, God, you're putting your finger on something. That there's a big issue that you're confronted with, maybe even a crisis. I'm gonna invite you to stand right now. But I only want you to stand if you can say these two things. God, in this crisis, I wanna desire you more than anything else.
Oh God, you are my God, I passionately seek you. And number two, God, I don't wanna trust myself, but I wanna trust you in this matter. Even if I can't see it, even if I can't see how it can work out, but I wanna go your way and trust you. Please stand right now. He is so with you. He is hemming you in. He's in front of you, and he is behind you. And let me pray for you. God, for every person standing, and please, church, join me in this prayer. God, these are people who are all in and want to be all in. And God, I pray all your anointing upon them. I pray that your power would fill them, that your presence would be real to them, bringing shalom, shalom. And God, that you would give them clarity. It's usually just enough to take the next step, that you would show them the way, that you'd give them the courage to take those steps. May the Lord bless them. God, may you protect them. May you make your face to shine upon them. May you be gracious to them. God, may you lift your countenance over them. God, may you go before them. God, may your angels surround them. May your Holy Spirit fill them. And God, may you give them your peace so that they can bring your peace and your shalom to whatever chaos you're calling them to. In the name of Jesus Christ.